Good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, being with us today. You would open your Bible, please. We are in Genesis chapter 19. I'm going to start reading for us in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word before us, we recognize that The subject of this chapter is difficult, that it is very sensitive in many ways. It's probably not a passage that's a favorite of ours to turn to for our daily devotions, and yet we recognize this is your word, and we recognize it teaches us important things that we need to know. We recognize in this chapter your instruction for our hearts, for our lives. And so we come to this morning's time expectantly. We pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would teach us from your word, that your spirit would be active and at work in us. And so we ask for your blessing today. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter, uh, I just read the first couple of verses of the chapter, but really we're going to uh, cover the majority majority of it. We uh, will leave uh, Lot and his daughters for a later time, but we're going to cover up to that point, Lord willing, today. And if you have read this chapter, or even if you've not read the Bible at all, you've probably heard of uh, what goes on in this chapter. In fact, I have um, vague recollections of my own childhood where I didn't grow up with the Bible, and yet I remember seeing a picture Bible and, and seeing the fire and the brimstone raining down on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, um, and that, that sticks with you. This is, uh, there is imagery within this passage that sticks with us. We have already seen judgment from God in, uh, in the book of Genesis, and uh, we could go back all the way to When sin first entered entered the picture in chapter 3, and we have pronouncements by God of what is going to happen, Uh, we see that the first couple is banished from the garden. We see that where they had life, now they experience death. We see that where they had access to God and access to uh, his, uh, His garden, they now are banished from that. We see uh, later on what happens with Cain after he has uh, killed Abel. 
and we see that he is banished as well. And, uh, and so we see God's judgment there. We saw in uh, chapter 6 and verse 5 uh, that, uh, that humanity has continued to deteriorate, so that by that point in 6.5 we read these words, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not a ringing endorsement. So God sent judgment in the form of a worldwide flood to destroy humanity. And from that judgment, out of that judgment, He delivered Noah and seven others. And afterwards, He promised that He wouldn't judge the world again with a worldwide flood in the same way. But we've been warned, even as we've come to uh, the story of Abraham and, and uh, all that's gone on with him, we've been warned already in, uh, back in chapter 13 and verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And uh, that uh, is a foreboding message foreshadowing what is to come with the people of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. And so today we're going to see the downfall and the judgment of those people. And we're going to see that that judgment is not just uh, a, a judgment, as if there is ever such a thing as just a judgment, but it is so cataclysmic, it is so devastating that the imagery from this judgment in this chapter will stick in the minds of biblical authors going forward so that future authors in the Bible, when they reflect on the judgment of God that is going to come in the end times or perhaps the judgment of God that is going to come on a nation uh, during uh, during time, they use this same kind of imagery. And in fact, we use that imagery, don't we? In uh, the ESV, it doesn't translate it as, uh, it, it as fire and brimstone. The King James does, and that's the language that we stick with. That's the language that stays in our mind, fire and brimstone raining down from heaven as judgment upon a wicked people. And so we're going to uh, work our way through this passage today and and, uh, and then we're going to make several comments at the end that uh, conclusions we can draw and points of application uh, for us as well. But we'll notice right off the bat, starting in, in verse 1, that we have Lot sitting there in, uh, in the gate of the city, much like we saw Abraham sitting in his tent, in the door of his tent. Remember when the three men appeared and, and he came and addressed them? We have a similar kind of setting here, which tells us something about Lot's importance in this town, that he has some sort of official capacity. He's some sort of elder of the city. He's not just a visitor. He's there in the gates. That's a place of importance, and, uh, and that's the position that he's in. And, and, and when these two men come in, we know they're angels. When they come in and visit, he rises to greet them. He bows himself down, his face to the earth. Very similar to Abraham, though, uh, with some important differences there. But, but nevertheless, he's greeting them, and he calls out to them. He says, my lords, don't, don't stay in the open square, which was the custom. When you show up in town, you would stay out there in the, in the, in the open square and, until someone noticed you and had room for you. And they would invite you into their home or they would invite you to their place to take care of them. And he says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house right away. Spend the night with me. Wash your feet. I'll feed you and I can send you on in the morning. So he's seeking to show hospitality to them as well. And they say, no, we're gonna, we'll stay out in the town square. And so they decide they're going to stay in the town square. But he pressed them, in verse 3, strongly. And so they turned aside to him, and they entered his house. 
And he made a feast for them, and he provided for them, and, and all of this. So he's hospitable to them. But the story continues. I want to notice, as we, uh, before we go any farther in our text here, the, our whole section we're looking at today is arranged according to the time of day. We don't always have such a convenient uh, reference system in the Bible, but this one is arranged that way. And that's why I've called this Judgment Day for Sodom and Gomorrah, because it is arranged that way. In verse 1 of chapter 19, they came in the evening. And so our first section is going to take place in the evening, and we have an evening announcement of judgment. Why is that? Why is there going to be an announcement of judgment? Well, we see verse 4, before they lay down, so they've had their meal, they've been invited in to Lot's place, they've eaten together, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. Now, that's not just being wordy, trying to make a verse longer. He's using that kind of language to, to make it very clear to us that this is a pervasive movement within the community. It wasn't just some men showed up, you know, like the, the town bad guy decided that he was going to visit the house of Lot that night. It wasn't. It was the men of the city. It was the, the men of Sodom, both young and old. So this isn't just, just the old men who are you know, dirty old men and going to pursue what they're going to pursue or whatever. No, the young are involved too. It's young and old. Across the board, the men of the city, all the people. This is the whole town comes out to the last man. You think the author is trying to drive a point home? He is. He, he wants us to know what kind of town this is. We want, he wants us to know uh, the, the, the truth of the words that were written back in 1313. 13, the men of Sodom were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. And not just a couple. Not just one or two bad seeds. This was the nature of the whole place. So they show up to Lot's place and they surround the home. They don't just come and stand in a line and knock at the door. They surround the home. And they called to Lot, verse 5, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that's, that's euphemistic language. And we have a mixed audience and, and we want to uh, be polite, etc. We want to uh, be clear while also, um, you know, I want my six-year-old son to be able to follow along and not be tripped up in his mind, but their intentions were evil. To know, in this sense, means sexual relations. It doesn't mean that they wanted to introduce themselves around, we want to get to know you, maybe, maybe play a game of cards. Or, or come join us, we're going to go and do, you know, go for a walk. Or No, their intentions are very explicit and very wicked. They're, they're, they're right there on uh, the, the, the page itself. When he says, uh, they say, we want to know them. Well, how, how do I know this? Uh, how do I know this is a euphemism? If you'll keep your finger there in chapter 19 and go back to Genesis chapter 4, it should be no uh, surprise to us we use this language as well to know uh, when, we're, when we're speaking euphemistically. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. What kind of knowing results in conception? 
It's very clear, right? And uh, you could go on in, in, in verse 17 of that same chapter, chapter 4. Cain knew his wife and she conceived. It's the same kind of knowing. It's, it's euphemistic. It's carried on, and I don't need to uh, uh, hit that point anymore, but their intentions were uh, very explicit. They make them known. We want to uh, know those men. Bring them out to us that we may know them. Verse 6, so Lot, who's the host, went out to them, to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him. It seems he knows something is up. He, it seems like he has a suspicion of what's going on, and we've kind of gotten that idea from the beginning, right? These men just walk into town, and Lot is volunteering and saying, stay at my place. No, you can't stay out in the open. You've got to stay at my place. Come on in. I'll take care of you. You can take off in the morning. Stay with me. He knows what kind of town Sodom is. He goes out to the men at the entrance. He closes the door behind him. And he says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. That's interesting. He, he calls them my brothers. Now, he's not really of them. Remember, he's a guest. He's been there about 20 years by now, if you, if, if you count back to when he first arrived there. But, but he calls them my brothers. Now, this is probably because he's trying to relate to them and, 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 and help them to see his way and, and do what he says. Don't do this wicked thing. But it's interesting that he would identify with them. I think that gives us a peek into his character, that, that he himself would, would identify with them as one of them to some degree or another. And so he says, don't, don't act so wickedly. This thing you're about to do, don't, don't do this thing. In verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now that verse makes no sense. We can understand all the words in it. But we can't understand how he could say such a thing. Now to try and help understand, we, we do need to get a peek into the, the notion of hospitality in the Near Eastern culture. Hospitality was very, very important and actually still exists in certain cultures of the world today that even in, uh, in, in places like Chechnya and other, other, other places where um, to be in blood feud with someone is, is absolute death. But if by some circumstance you end up being taken into the home, even of your worst enemy, if you're taken into his home, you have now come under his protection. And he will die to defend you against his neighbor. So this idea of hospitality is, is of utmost importance. That someone has come under your roof, you take care of them. And so, okay, well, I understand hospitality. And so Lot has... Uh, this difficult situation where he's got these guests who've come into his house. He has brought them in. They have come under his protection. And so what happens to them is going to reflect on him, and, and he's got obligation to, to keep them and protect them and take care of them and all this. That, and that still makes no sense of what he says. For him, to, for him to say, don't do this wicked thing. These men are under my protection. I get that. I can relate to that. I'm with you so far, Lot. Way to go. 
Are you going to have a, stand, uh, you know, a, a standoff at the door? Are you going to, well, what's going to happen? But for him to think that it was a legitimate option, a legitimate solution in this situation to offer his daughters. Here, take these daughters of mine. Do to them whatever you want. But leave my guests alone. I've heard some people try to, to say that, um, that perhaps uh, Lot knew their proclivities and knew that his daughters were safe from them. And so he was offering something he knew they would never take. I think that's utterly untrue. I think he was making a decision. I either sacrifice those that I have been given protection of because they came under my roof because I owe them hospitality or I sacrifice my daughters. I have daughters. And I don't see how he could have made such a decision, but I don't think it's out of character for him. As we've looked at Lot's character, he has made decisions and will continue to make decisions that I don't comprehend, so in no way do I defend Lot and his decision. But that's what he did. And I think that we can, we can understand that to some degree when we consider that he's lived there for 20 years. He's been there. This is, this is his culture now. You know, I joke that, that in Fallon, you know, once you've lived here 20 years, you're almost a local. <laughs> right? It takes a while, and the people who've moved in, even within the last 20 years, are saying, yep. <laughs> right? He's, he's been there 20 years. This, this is his culture. And, and uh, he is different. He's distinct from it in some ways. But I think he's been warped by it. So I don't understand his decision. But I, I, I think of a verse that we talked about in Sunday school this morning, this morning, 1 Timothy 5.8, that talks about someone who uh, doesn't provide for his own, is, has, a, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's just someone who doesn't provide for his own. What about someone who offers his family as a sacrifice, offers his daughters? This is, this is evil and this is wicked, and I don't think there's any excuse whatsoever for it, but I think it's a, a realistic picture of what would happen to a man who has dwelt in such a context where every last man, young and old, with, 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 without exception, would come to the door, surround the house to accost those inside. When you subject yourself to that kind of culture, for 20 years, it's going to leave a mark. And I think it does. Verse 9, they said, stand back. So after he's made his horrific offer, they say, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He, he, he moved here. This guy's not a local. He moved here. Yeah, it was 20 years ago, but he, he, he's, he came here to sojourn and he has become the judge. He's telling us what to do. Who is this guy? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So now he's in danger. Not just his daughters, not just his guests. He's in danger. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. So you see that what they were after was, was not just a... an evening of entertainment of some sort of consensual nature. 
You see that their lusts are violent. They're willing to break the door down. They surround the house. What would you do if you, if you heard a knock at the door and you looked out and your house was surrounded? You would know you were under siege. And that's the nature of their lust that would drive them to such an extent that they would want to drag these men out so that they could have their way with them. Again, I'm using, I'm using euphemistic language because uh, there are small children in the room, but, but you get the point. There is nothing good intended. This is atrocious. This is evil. And this is wicked. And so they surround the house. They're going to break down the door. Uh, verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and they brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So he's rescued by the very people that he's trying to protect. They reach out, they grab him, they bring him in, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. That's kind of a, a, a comical image. Those who came to lay siege, you know, with the pitchforks and the and, and the torches and all that kind of stuff. And now they, they're wearing themselves out trying to find the door because they've been blinded supernaturally by these angels who have come to visit. And so uh, they've been blinded. They're, they're fumbling around out there trying to find their way in. Meantime, the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now's the time to get out. You see how they're behaving, Lot? That's why we're here, to bring destruction on the place. And the clock's ticking. So you get your people out of here. Find them, get them, and take them out of here. And so you've got this situation where it's announced to them that judgment is going to come. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. And it's going to happen shortly. So Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. So he goes to them, he tells them, Now's the time, get out of here. We, gotta, we have to leave and we have to leave right now. God is about to destroy the city, Yahweh my God is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now, there's a play on uh, language here because do you remember what happened when Abraham and Sarah heard from God that he was going to give them a baby boy? What did they do? They laughed. Well, the word here for jesting is, a, is uh, the same root word. So these sons-in-law, they hear the message of, of impending judgment and they laugh. There's laughter uh, as a response to the declaration that God's judgment is going to come. I think you've probably shared the gospel with people before. Perhaps before you came to Christ, someone shared the gospel with you and you laughed. Pfft, judgment? You, God's going to judge sin? That's crazy. That's ridiculous. Why don't you go back to whatever rock you crawled out from under and just stay there? Maybe that was you. Or maybe that's someone you have shared with, but certainly that is these two sons-in-law of Lot. So that's the evening announcement of judgment. And then we see, starting in verse 15, the dawn rescue. Again, I said this is divided by times of day. 
The dawn rescue by force begins in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, up! Now, before we go any farther, what in the world is Lot still doing there when the sun comes up? He's just been warned the night before, God sent us here to destroy the place, so gather your people and leave town. And Lot's thinking, well, we can go in the morning, right? So the angels come to him and they, they wake him up, it seems like, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Leave now. Leave now. So the angels try again. They have to, they have to wake him up, as it were. He's, the dawn, dawn is, is, is upon them, and they are still there. But look at verse 16. He lingered. You see the lethargy? The spiritual lethargy, the, the, the inability to comprehend that now means now, Lot. The judgment of God is impending. Why are you lingering? And how often we do that. How often we linger. We hear the Word of God telling us, you must leave that. You must repent of that sin. You must leave that. And maybe tomorrow morning. And even tomorrow morning, we're reminded and we linger. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. That's why I call this a dawn rescue by force. The, the angels have already tried logic. They've already tried reason. They've tried emotional motivation. And so what ends up happening? They grab them by the hand, and they drag them out, rescuing them by force. And we might think, you know, I mean, don't get rough with people, right? Drag them by the hand and, and lead them out. I mean, couldn't you, you know, be a gentleman about this? You know, continue talking to Lot. But did you see the language? that this was the Lord being merciful to him. God's grabbing hold of him and rescuing him by force was God being merciful to him. I would expect, we've got firefighters in the room, we've got, we've got first responders and whatnot, that if, if, uh, if, if one of these uh, firefighters or first responders or someone in the military came upon an accident and there's a flaming car and, and, and the person was just let me, and they're inside, let me finish this text. I got to text my mom and let her know I crashed and the place is burning, right? I could imagine, you know, doors being ripped off and people being dragged out. I would expect Hesse to do that. And that would be merciful for him to do that. And that is exactly what happens in this case. And there's a picture here. When we read on in the New Testament, we read about the work of God where He reaches into a heart and He makes it willing. Some of the language is, is, is the language of dragging. It's the same language. Dragging this person to faith. 
dragging this person into the kingdom of God. Why is that distasteful to us? When in this case, Lot was just going to die physically. But, but it's called the mercy of God when God rescues him in that context. And yet when we talk about the soul of a person requiring the drawing of God, the dragging of God, we say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, that's too far. It was the mercy of God. God being merciful to Lot that dragged him out of there. And as they brought them out, verse 17, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. So they've been brought out physically and now they're put on their feet as it were and said, go to those hills, get out of here and run and do it fast. And Lot says, no, my lords. I know you've physically saved me from the burning city as it were. You've, you've rescued my life, but no, I don't like that plan. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. I mean, I know you've gone through great effort to rescue me to this point, but if I just, you know, continue with your plan, I'm surely going to die in the hills because I can't live in the hills. And so he suddenly begins to doubt the plans of the men. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. So he looks at this small city and says, why not? It would be better if I went there rather than go into the hills. See, in the hills I might get caught up in all this, and, and, but I'd be safe in this little town. And it's small enough that, uh, that, that you won't have to judge it because it's such a little place. It, isn't it small? It's just, it'll, it'll escape your notice. I'll be safe there. I'll be safe. And he said to him, behold... I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the place was called Zoar. So here they've been rescued physically out of the house, out of the city. They've been placed down and said, go to the hills and don't look back. Run that way. Don't look back. And Lot objects and says, well, I'd rather go to town. I'll go to this town over here. It's not so big. You really don't have to destroy it. I'll be safe there. Let me go there. And so uh, the angels say, okay. Really, it's the Lord saying to them, okay, uh, we'll, we'll grant you that to get there quickly because things are going to start happening as soon as you get there. Don't dawdle. Don't look back. And so he takes off. And that's the direction he's going to go. So we have a dawn rescue by force, but then the time continues. We have sunrise of fire and brimstone. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, the town he was running to. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Any question where the judgment came from? The Lord reigned it from the Lord, out of heaven, God's judgment. 
on this place. Now, it's, remember when in the last chapter we saw that, that Abraham was pleading with the Lord. If there, are, if there are 50 people there, are you going to destroy 50 righteous people along with all these wicked people? The Lord says no. What if, what if there are only 45 righteous people there? I'll spare it for 45. And then this haggling goes on, right? And they arrive down finally, eventually, where it comes to 10, and Abraham finally says, Lord, what if there are only 10 there? Will you, will you destroy those 10 with, with, with all these other? If there are 10 righteous, will you destroy them with the unrighteous? The Lord says, no, I won't. I'll spare the whole place if I could find 10 righteous people there. Well, didn't find 10, did he? He only found four people who were rescued, and they're of questionable character. But nevertheless, he rescued them, thus leaving the entirety of the remainder of the populace. Remember all the ones who were gathered at the door to the last man, everyone who was, who was after this evil thing? It's those people who were left, and judgment comes. And he overthrew those cities fire and sulfur and brimstone raining down from God, from heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The, the destruction is complete. It is utter. It's not as if, you know, just the houses all burned up or something. The whole place was radically changed. And of course, scholars think that this all took place in the, in the neighborhood of the Dead Sea. And for any of you who've been to the Dead Sea, I've not, but I've seen pictures and it's dead everywhere. There, there's, there's, there's salt, the smell of sulfur still remains in the air. Even the vegetation is wiped out. The whole place was wiped out. And this, this language, this is such memorable language that we still use it today talking about judgment fire and brimstone. What's a fire and brimstone preacher? It's a preacher who talks about judgment all the time. So this language has stuck with us, and this language carries on through the rest of the Bible, but the, the point is that he judged cataclysmically, horrifically, visibly, miraculously rained judgment down on the whole place, rescuing only these four, Lot and his wife and two daughters. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So she seems to be in some way more attached to the culture of Sodom. It's her home as well, but more so her home than Lot and his daughters. We don't know where Lot's wife came from. It doesn't say. We have no clue. But I wonder, I speculate if she was from there, if he met her and married her there. And this is her, these are her people. Even if she's not from there, even if she wasn't born there, yet she has become attached to it enough that she can't really drag herself away. It's not that she made the, made the mistake of, of accidentally looking that way. You know, it's like in the movies when someone's on a high up ledge or whatever and somebody says, don't look down, and the first thing you do is, oh, rats. It's not an accident. She looks back because she longs for it. She's sorry to see it go. These are her people. That is her land in some way. And so 
she looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Why a pillar of salt? I don't know. I don't know. I know that in the ancient world when a city was defeated, when a land was defeated, they would often sow salt into the ground, thereby rendering the ground uh, sterile. It was, a, it was an image of judgment. That the place won't even grow anything because there's, there's salt everywhere. So does that what it, is that what it means? I, I don't know. I, I imagine that's what it means, but I don't know. But we see this, this horrific judgment that has happened, and, and now the four people who are rescued are now three people who are rescued, a husband without a wife and two daughters without a mom. We see a morning now of observation and remembering. Verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning. So we flash away from the destruction of the valley, and now we flash back up to Abraham, who, has, who was in the previous chapter looking down upon the city, <clears throat> discussing what was going to happen down there with the Lord. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, not just this city, but the whole place. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Nothing left but cinders, just smoke. And you imagine in, in, your, in your heart you know, what, uh, what, what was going through Abraham's mind at this time. Did Lot survive? Or is Lot dead in the smoke? He didn't know. Abraham had no idea. So he's looking down and he's seeing this place. He was just pleading for their lives. Lord, spare the whole place if you can only find 50. 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. If you, even if 10 righteous, spare the whole place. He was interceding and now he sees the smoke going up like the smoke of a furnace. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. Now, that's surprising language. Talking about the destruction of the valley, and, and, and we know that Lot was rescued, shouldn't it say that the Lord remembered Lot and rescued him? Remember on the boat? Remember uh, dur during the flood? The Lord looked down and He remembered Noah. And thus He brought an end to the flood. He remembered the man and brought an end to the destruction of all of uh, humanity and really all of the earth at that time. But here, that's not the language we have. We have, we would expect, and God remembered Lot, but God remembered Abraham. He remembered the one man, and He sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when He overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. He remembered Abraham, and He delivered Lot. That's surprising. That's not what we expect. That's not the language he has used before, though we've seen judgment happen before. That's not the way he talked about it. I want to make some observations here, and then we're going to move on to uh, some points of application at, at this point. As I said, we're going to come back at a later time and address uh, the, the continuation of Lot's story, the continuation of this chapter. But for now, some implications and some observations. 
as bad a man as Lot was, and I don't defend Lot, though the New Testament calls him righteous Lot. That's a discussion for next week. But as bad a man as Lot was, contrast his behavior of hospitality and giving, at least for the sake of his guests, contrast that giving nature with the rapacious nature of the community. They were going to take if they had to kick the door down to do it. And if Lot got in their way, they were going to take him too. It was all about their own desires. It was all about what they could get. It was all about what they could take. Another observation. Lot is seen trying to do what's right in some ways, but he is hindered and he is confused. He cannot see clearly. The influence of these 20 years that he's been there in Sodom has weakened and dulled his spiritual senses. He's got one foot in Abraham's world and he's got one foot in Sodom. He is a confused, confused man. And you see the destruction that happens in his own life. He's already offered his own daughters, and you see what's going to happen. Now, another observation. According to Ezekiel 16, there are several places in the Bible where Lot is mentioned. There are several places in the Bible where Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. A very interesting one is in Ezekiel chapter 16, which talks about the root of Sodom's sin. Ezekiel 16, verse 49, says the root of their sin was decadence. The word language used there is pride, excess food, and prosperous ease. And we know what the sin of Sodom was, and everywhere in the rest of Scripture, that's confirmed. The, the, the homosexuality that went on in this rapacious homosexuality, not just that sin, but it was, it was violent. And so here you've got their pride and their excess food, their prosperous ease, their decadence, coupled with an unwillingness to aid the poor and the needy. They weren't going to give anything to anybody, but they would take everything you had. That was the nature of the city. And this seems to fit with what Lot first observed about the region when he separated uh, from Abraham in chapter 13. The wealth of it, it's well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. It's such a lush place. It's, there's such wealth and opulence and, and opportunity. This is so wonderful. And you see, at least for Sodom and Gomorrah, what kind of thing it led to. Another observation about sexual sin. God's people are to be set apart from sexual sin. Another observation, there is a connection between sexual sin and other forms of victimization and greed. Sexual sin is a taking sin. It's a greedy sin. It wants pleasure or power for me, no matter what it costs anyone else, particularly those weaker than us. Another observation, there is a connection between sexual sin and the downfall of a society. Again and again in Revelation, we see the language of sexual immorality in connection with judgment. For example, in Revelation 14, and verse 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This is destroyed, destruction, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this means more than just sexual immorality, but it certainly includes sexual immorality. So you see a connection between a downfall of civilization and sexual sin. But there's a 
there's another point here, an observation I want to make before we move on to applications. Why was Lot rescued? In our passage here, Lot was rescued because God remembered Abraham. The one man was remembered and the other man was rescued. He was, Abraham had a unique relationship, a unique status with God. And he interceded on behalf of Lot. And thus, God, in this judgment, saw Abraham and remembered him and rescued Lot. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It doesn't say he remembered Lot and rescued Lot. The reference there to Abraham is with you and me a reference to Christ. How is it that you and I, though though our outward sins may not look like those in this this chapter, how is it that we can be delivered? Is it because there's something special about you? I think you're special, and your your spouse thinks you're special, and your kids one day will think you're special. (laughs) But why, why is it that you can be delivered, that you can be forgiven of your sins? It's because of Christ, the one with the unique status with God. Not only is he son of God, but he became man, righteous man, always obedient in every last aspect of his heart and his life, always obedient to God. He has a unique status. And what did he do? He gave himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sins of others, not his own, because he didn't have any. And so we who have faith in Christ are counted in Him. And so God remembered Abraham and delivered Lot. If you are in Christ, God remembers Christ and delivers you. That is your only hope. If your hope is that you are special enough, if your hope is that you've done enough, or that by virtue of uh, being human you are therefore God's child in some way, If your hope is in any of those things, you have no hope. Your only hope is in Christ. Abraham had had interceded for Lot, and Lot was delivered. And what do we read in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 about Christ? He is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through Him because He always lives to make intercession for them. He gave Himself as a priestly sacrifice, and he continues to intercede on our behalf as our priest. As Abraham interceded for Lot, and thus Lot was delivered, we who are in Christ receive the benefits of his constant intercession for us. A couple of points of application, and we'll draw it to a close. First of all, be a giver, not a taker. What do I mean? I like to receive gifts maybe more than the next guy. Right? Be a giver, not a taker. I didn't say receiver. A taker. As tainted and inconsistent as Lot was, he was trying to give protection to his guests. He was giving, even giving of himself, even horrifically giving of himself. The people of Sodom, on the other hand, were out to take all the pleasure they could get from those same guests. They were there to take it by force if need be, kick down the door, break in, and take it by force. So examine your own heart. How much of your life is about what you can take? 
In how many relationships, in how many contexts do you take what you want for your own pleasure, for your own benefit, for yourself? How much of your life is about that? How much is about giving others what they need, no matter the cost to you? Wherever that is the case, wherever it's the case that we, that we desire to give of ourselves for the sake of another person, even if it's vastly uh, expensive to us, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. But where we see taking as the norm, I have this relationship so I can benefit. I, I, I utilize this thing so I can take. That's an area where we need to repent we need to become one who loves others instead of lusting after what others can give us. In Christ, we have been given everything that we need. There is no lack. There is no shortage. There is no limit to what we have been given in Christ. And therefore, we will never run out when we give to other people, when we give of ourselves and we pour ourselves out. So be a giver, not a taker. I think that's if, if we passed by this chapter and didn't notice that vast difference between Lot, with, who's a horribly flawed man, what's different between him and the people around him? This is a big difference. Secondly, second point of application, beware of decadence. It leads to all kinds of opportunities for corruption. Idle hands are the devil's workplace. That's not in the Bible, but, but, but it's here. Beware of decadence. We can make so many opportunities for ourselves. We, we, live in a, we, we live in a time where there's such opportunity. Beware of decadence. Thirdly, come out of Sodom. What do I mean? Worldly culture comes into your home. It comes into your family. It comes into your mind through the, the radio and TV and computer and phone and peers and, and all of that stuff. We are more affected by our culture than we have any clue about. I don't think Lot recognized how much he had been shaped by his community. And I don't think we recognize how much we have been shaped by our community. I recognized some differences when we moved back from Russia. I recognize fewer differences now. Specifically on this topic, if you have children in public school, you need to really think about the massive level of influence your children's peers and teachers have on passing on cultural values rather than biblical values to your children. Uh, we have teachers in the room. We have godly teachers who, who walk with Christ and they, they teach their kids, uh, their, their students, um, as biblically as they know how. And they are few and far between. You need to think about that, how much culture is being imbibed in the public school system Fourthly, repent of all sexual sin in your life. Don't tolerate it. It's destructive to all of society. It's destructive to a church. It's destructive to a family. It's death to a marriage, and it is death to your soul. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee it. Finally, smell the sulfur. Smell the sulfur. 
I imagine Abraham that next morning looking out and seeing the smoke rising up as if from a furnace. He could smell it. He could smell the remainder of the, of the, the brimstone in the air. We need to smell that. We need to realize that there, there, is a, there is a world and there is a culture and there are people around us who are perishing. And just as Abraham was standing there wondering, is, is Lot in the smoke? We need to wonder and we need to be developing a heart of compassion for those who will face that apart from Christ. So many who will want to stand on their own merit. So many who will want to deny the existence of God all the way to the judgment seat. We need to go to them with the gospel. We need to have a heart for them like the heart Abraham had for Lot particularly and even for Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the gospel. We have the words of eternal life because they are the words of Christ. We are the ones who bear the message of how a person can be redeemed so that, so that when Christ remembers or when, when God remembers Christ, the benefit comes to us. So that when God remembers Christ, the benefit can come to this person that you're talking to, that they would be rescued, that they would be taken out of there, that they would, that they would have a new destiny, that they would have righteousness before God and forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Christ. And so, as we wrap up this, uh, this passage, there are many more things we could talk about but if we, if we come away with the smell of sulfur and the realization that God is just and judgment will come and the only way to escape judgment is in Jesus Christ, then this message and this passage will have had its impact. Let's pray. Father, we have gone through a difficult passage we have wrestled with difficult truths. There are others we will have to wrestle with later. But Father, I pray that we would realize the truth, the fact of coming judgment. That we would realize that there is no way of escape but Christ. We couldn't run far enough we couldn't deny hard enough. We couldn't reject strongly enough. We couldn't do enough of our own. The only hope from that coming judgment is Jesus. And that is hope we get to offer to everyone who will trust in Him. I pray that you would make us the messengers of that good news to the world around us that we would preach Christ, that we would share Christ, that we would make Christ known, that we ourselves would, would take refuge in Him and we would invite everyone around us to do exactly the same. Find refuge in Jesus Christ and be saved. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family come up uh, front to pray with you if you want to pray with them. They love to do that. Otherwise, take this message of the gospel of Christ, of the fact that God remembers Jesus and we get the benefit. Take that to your neighbors around you. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.